Hello, everyone. My name is Hannah Wright. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm one of the executive producers and directors of Regarding Dracula. Uh, this is a bonus episode that I'm very excited to show to you. But before we begin, I wanted to give you a warning that it does contain frank discussion of sex and sexuality, although nothing explicit, as well as spoilers. If you're enjoying Dracula for the first time and would rather not be spoiled, then you might want to wait until after you've listened to episode 84 or September 29th uh, and to listen to this bonus episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Here we go. Uh, welcome, listeners, to another bonus episode of Regarding Dracula, where we are talking about the context and culture surrounding the book Dracula uh, in the Victorian era. Uh, we want to say thank you to our Seed and Spark contributors who uh, helped us basically get to this point where we could uh, do this series of extra episodes. Um, we are th so very grateful for the opportunity. I am very excited to be joined today by a Victorianist uh, and writer of one of my favorite podcasts, Victoriosity. Would you please introduce yourself? Hi, thank you. That was so lovely. <laughs> I am Dr. Jen Sugden, and uh, I am an erstwhile Victorianist. Um, <laughs> I did a, <laughs> a PhD um, in London um, on the history of the Victorian novel, really. And I looked at um, changes in the criminal jury trial during the 19th century and how that influenced the development of novel narratives uh, and in particular like detective and mystery narratives fantastic um so that was my speciality but uh, I, I also teach and um so I teach a lot of Victorian fiction so I've taught Dracula quite a lot <laughs> uh, and have like a healthy interest in the gothic and Dracula any kind of sensational uh text of the 19th century and this is exactly why we're so glad you're here uh, so I'm delighted I'm delighted to be here. Wonderful. Well, okay, so let's let's start with what the Victorian era is. Now, when we define Victorian times, we're talking about a period of time that goes from like the 1820s to 1830s all the way up to World War One. So that's nearly a century. Why do we consider it like one cultural moment? Is it just because of Queen Victoria? Yeah. So I thought about this. So so the like for me, like if we're gonna if if we were, if we were defining like what is the Victorian era itself, I'd say it spans her reign which is like 1837 to 1901. But there's so much interesting stuff going on that critics and, and theorists are kind of interested in that it's interesting to look kind of just before and just after that. What we've ended up with is a, a, sort of a period to study that sort of just ekes out either side a little bit. And it seems to kind of be eking longer and longer and longer. Um, <laughs> so as you say, like, you know, we, we, we talk and might talk about like the long 19th century, um, scholars okay. often talk about, and that can run anywhere from like, like the late uh, 18th century, right the way through, as you say, to World War One. Um, uh, and I, and I was thinking about this question about why we tr tend to treat it as one cultural moment, because like the world in 18... 30 is like completely different how it is in like 1890 or 1900. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of it might be to do with the fact that Victoria's reign was so long, particularly the time that she was on the throne. And she's so like iconic and emblematic of the period that that, that might be part of it. I think it might be onto something there. Mm. But also I think that during that time, so much changed. It's a period of just rapid social, technological, scientific advancement in a way that we'd never really seen before, you know, in, in large part, thanks to like the industrial right. revolution. Mm -hmm. But you're getting changes, huge changes in people's way of thinking and experiencing their lived reality. So we get 
trains in the 1840s, 1838 is the invention of the telegraph. It changes people's conception of like time and space. Darwin's writing Origin of the Species, I think mean, it's like, like around 1860, 1859, 1860. We've got new theories in psychology, the legal system changes, we've got loads of reform acts. So I think whilst a lot changes and you get a very different world at the beginning and the end of the period, because change is happening all the time, I'm wondering if that's why we tend to think of it as one cultural moment, as this, as this moment in time when things just radically shift and change interesting that that would be my my thought on it well that's interesting because like now when we think of victorian times we think of them as very like i i don't know rigid um regimented you know people being like having to follow one thing at a time but like characterizing it as a time of change that that adds a whole bunch of possibility to this this vibe that i'm picking up from from uh victorian times i think it is i think it is it's so so much is changing I'm wondering whether sort of <laughs> popular culture like today is partly to blame for our view of the Victorian period as a, a time that's quite rigid and set. Mm -hmm. It's not it's it's not really like that. I mean, the society isn't no, not everybody's the same, I suppose. Right. And we have this yeah, we have this idea of the Victorians as very sort of prim and proper, uh, very prudish almost. Um and I think a lot of that also will come from the dominant discourse of the time, which tends to be like middle class in particular. In the 1850s, you get the abolition of the taxes on knowledge. So duty that was paid on newspapers and on paper itself, hmm. they were abolished. So that means that it becomes much cheaper to print uh, newspapers, pamphlets, magazines, journals. And there's a huge rise in literacy as well. So, it, and it becomes cheaper to buy these things. So more people are reading. Uh, so there's a greater kind of proliferation of knowledge out there. But of course, the people who are writing it are writing very much from their own class sensibilities and ideology, whether they're aware of it or not. And so I'm wondering whether some of, a, a lot of the writings that we have left behind because of that might themselves kind of give a little bit of this impression of quite a rigid um, set, uh, sort of social system or ideas. Um, but if, but like as an example, you have in the Victorian period what we call costa culture. Hmm. So costa mongers are like street hawkers, street sellers, and you could get anything like eels, fruit and veg, pies, ice cream, even whatever. For example, uh, Eliza Doolittle in Pygmalion. Slash my fair lady, she's a costermonger. She sells, she's a flower seller. Ah. Costermongers had what we call costa culture, which was completely different to like other sort of social culture at the time. Right. So like women and men just didn't marry. Hmm. And we think if we think about Victorian period, you know, you might think, you know, oh, everybody who if they, you know, if they were in a relationship, they had children, what you know, that we would be very frowned upon if they weren't married. And that's the kind of expectation we have, but it was not the norm within costermonger culture, for example. So, yeah, so it's easy to kind of think about, I think, the Victorian periods, everybody being this, in this, like, these sort of rigid and set patterns and social structures in a way that isn't quite fully true when you take into account, like, the broad range of different cultures and peoples that lived in England at the time. But that's not to say that there isn't a dominant cultural discourse of 
rigidity and uh, and set patterns and social acceptability, which tends to be, I think, sort of a, a very middle class worldview. And that's because they become really the dominant class of the day, sort of in terms of like political power and numbers. I mean, the biggest numbers are in the working classes because they don't have a voice in the same way that the middle classes do. And for a number of reasons, some of which we'll touch on, obviously. I would love to actually talk more about the different social classes, because I, I don't know that this is this is not true of all of our listeners. Um, but for me, it's hard to imagine social classes based on anything besides how much money you have. Um, and I, I don't know if that's necessarily reflective of what social classes were like in Victorian era, or if if money became like the thing that determined them. Uh, can you talk a little bit about social classes during Victorian times and how that, that it might be different from today? Yeah, so very, I'm doing very broad strokes and it's obviously quite a, a complex area, right. but uh, what I say is broadly speaking, before the 19th century, traditional kind of social structure of England was sort of based in agriculture mm -hmm. and land ownership. Um, so interests tend to be based on like land and game. So what you'd have is a sort of a, a, a landed social hierarchy that's sort of almost like a feudal social structure. It's not feudalism, but it's kind of, it has this kind of feudal social structure where- It's a carryover from that. Yeah, yeah. So what you've got at the top is you've got your like nobility. So your earls and your dukes, various noble ranks. And obviously they're going to have money. Mm -hmm. And then you have the landed gentry also who have money, um, who are- a social class of landowners they might own a country estate they live off the interests of the land so for example rental income from tenant farmers would probably be one of the biggest incomes that they'd have mm. and then below that obviously you've got the middle classes and the working classes but england was really before the 19th century very agriculture based what it engendered is a sort of or critics think it engendered is is this sort of interdependent hierarchy where you get sort of patronage and responsibility downwards and deference upwards right. so and the landed gentry in particular who would very often have very close relatives themselves in the nobility um, were very socially and political politically powerful by the 19th century those traditional that traditional agricultural basis and land ownership creating that social system was starting to come under threat and fall away a little bit. And that's because of things like urbanization, industrialization, geographical migration to concentrated urban centers, new money from uh, industry, trade and finance, you know, much of which was made possible by the industrial revolution. All of those things started to challenge the traditional um, landed society. And the increased opportunities for those outside of the gentry to you know, make money and have money and have influence and power through investment in mills and factories and capital, that allowed people to place themselves financially, at least on the same level as the, gen as the gentry. Um, and so what you get in the 19th century really is this kind of rise of and consolidation of the middle classes. I think there's a critic called Robin Gilmore who who sees it as or calls it like the emergence and consolidation of the middle classes. Interesting. And they become very powerful, very influential. And what's really interesting in terms of you, you were talking about um, class being linked to money, mm -hmm. and it always has been, I suppose, in a sense. But maybe nowadays it, it is more to do with wealth. Whereas I think in the past 
whilst the landed gentry and the nobility would be quite wealthy, there's also something in there as well about, and I don't know if this is kind of peculiarly English as well, <laughs> there's something about like birth and rank and title and status mm -hmm. that goes beyond money. And in the Victorian period, when the middle classes started to become more powerful, more wealthy, that idea comes under challenge as well. Hmm. So, so people from within that class system could, from from the middle classes, could potentially be as wealthy as as people in the landed gentry. Right. So, what you're getting then is a shift from like previously this kind of social structure that sort of fostered the the idea, at least even if in reality it didn't exist, this idea of responsibility and patronage downwards and de deference upwards. Mm -hmm. It's replaced then by this system that's based on economic interests. And you start to like wander into like Marxism and stuff now. <laughs> so that the bonds between men become economic or between people, between men, I mean, there I'm talking kind of Victorian, <laughs> Victorian language, they would say men, but yeah, between people becomes economic. Yeah, and so the middle classes become very economically and politically increasingly powerful. They, the, the, I think it's the 1832 Reform Act, which dealt with voting, gave more men the vote. It gives uh, lots more middle class men mm -hmm. the vote. So, of course, they become more politically powerful in that way as well. Right. And so we start to see the waning influence of the gentry and the nobility. But obviously, that takes a very long time to sort of, uh, to really kind of fade away. Right. Yeah, so we get, yeah, so these kind of new economic relationships based on merchandise and money um, emerge, um, and with it, the middle classes. I, I was going to ask about class mobility. So it seems like there was, like, obviously no one's entering nobility or gentry, but a lot of people moving up to at least to, like, the same level of power. I think so, and but, but it's interesting because the social social mobility is an interesting question because it was possible in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And part and where it happens, I think, the most, or the most we see it, it is, is we get a, a fluidity of class boundary between, like, the landed gentry and the upper middle classes. Mm. Because what you because what happens is when you get when you get this shift of, of sort of social structure that's moving towards this kind of more being more about economic ties and you've, you're moving to a society which is becoming powered by like industry and capital capitalism and that kind of thing mm -hmm. rather than a sort of an agricultural agriculture based society what happens is you get the la people in the landed gentry becoming very land rich but cash poor uh, and all the money is tied up in the land right. but what that means is they start to form alliances with very wealthy families from the upper middle classes and it's sort of like it works quite nicely because it for a landed family the money's all tied up in the land so the eldest son usually this this is it's always portrayed like this in fiction, right. I think, <laughs> but it, but it's not necessarily always true because in truth, law, clever lawyers could get around it. Mm -hmm. But there was a, a statute in 1215, I think, called Statute de Donis, which basically creates a rule of primogeniture, which means that the land and the estate would pass to the firstborn son, usually. Right. It's stated in the gift who it will pass to, but it's normally to the first male issue. And that's a way of people not breaking up estates, but like the original owner doesn't want somebody years down the line to start breaking up the land and selling it off. They want to kind of keep it together. Right. So what that means is you have, actually, if you're the first one son, you might inherit this estate, but you might be quite cash poor. But families also had like second sons and third sons and and and, and women, like uh, daughters. And so it's like, well, what happens to them if I haven't got a lot of money to leave them? This is Jane Austen. Right. This is like every Jane Austen novel, right? It's Marianne <laughs> and Eleanor. It's, it's the Bennet 
daughters they're all worried about like what are we going to do when father dies because you know the estate's going to pass to some cousin because he didn't have any sons or um what have you so yeah so you get the the estate kind of yeah passes to that first male issue so what happens to the other children or what happens to the baronet that inherits the land but doesn't have any money well what happens is you start to get them being married into wealthy families but they have perhaps maybe new money Uh so um and of course the upper middle class is like that because they've got loads of money you know the wealthy industrialists have loads of money but he doesn't have a title but what if his daughter could marry an earl (laughs) oh well surely then that tells us that he's absolutely made it right i think so you get lots of kind of social mobility that way um, lower down it is possible we tend to hear about it or see it less and I'm, I was thinking about this earlier today and I I wonder whether that's partly to do with the middle classes <laughs> themselves and Dickens is a really good example of this so he's like lower middle class mm-hmm. and I think this when I when I look at writers middle class writers I often find in their novels there's the in the Victorian period there's this sort of desire to sort of say, look, here we are, we're the middle classes, we're the moral ones, we're the good, you know, we're the good ones. We're not like the the degenerate, lazy uh, arist- aristocrats. Or the uh, the greedy new money, for that matter. <laughs> um, but we're, we're the, you know, we're the people, we're, we work hard and we deserve what we've got and we have a good kind of like moral system. Mm-hmm. And um, we're just as good as them. And, and in that sense, class doesn't matter. But at the same time, what they also want to do is they want to define themselves against the working class. They want to say, well, yeah, well, we're not that. Uh. <laughs> even, even if, you know, you might have like social problem novels that are trying to, on the face of it, deal quite sensitively, for example, with class issues and class divides and saying, you know, we're all the same person. But if you actually kind of like dig into it, the novelists themselves probably not aware, but it's like, you know, you know, so as an example off the top of my head, um, it might be something like, you know, if we're talking about like unionizing and workers' rights, the novel might have a message of like, oh, can't we all come together as fellow men by just talking nicely about it? Mm. Rather than like, you know, industrial action's not great. <laughs> um, but of course, because that's, that protects the middle class interest, right? right? And not the working class interest. Um, even though it might be presented, the working class might be presented sympathetically or empathetically in other ways. So yeah, so and, and the reason I mentioned Dickens in terms of this class, social mobility mm-hmm. um, is because Great Expectations is a great novel for this. It's such a weird novel in terms of social mobility because on the one hand, it's all about social mobility. It's about a blacksmith's boy, working class, gets given this legacy. He doesn't know who it's from. Um, and he gets sent to to the city to become a gentleman. And the question is, like, can he? And the novel deals with, can he become a gentleman? Is Pip capable of doing it? Mm-hmm. And it grapples a lot with a question that I think was an anxiety for the middle classes, which was what a gentleman used to mean was, you know, somebody who had been born to it. So, like, rank and status right you are you're born as a baronet you're born as an earl or whatever you know you're going, you're going to inherit that that makes you a gentleman it's not really about your character but the middle classes didn't have that and there's sort of a sense in which someone like dickens wants to believe actually being a gentleman is more than rank and status it's actually not really about that it's not about birth it's about who you are as a person mm. um, and your morals and your attitude and how you behave his, his way of showing that is that is the person who has been born a gentleman, Bentley Drummle, is a bully and vicious, domestically violent, and just a really nasty, nasty character. And when Pip tries to emulate what he thinks a gentleman is, which is that older, older sort of 
vision of what a gentleman was. He himself becomes not a particularly nice person. Mm. And the novel seems to suggest that somebody like Joe Gargery, who's also who's the blacksmith, he's he's Pip's father-like figure, but he's married to his sister. He embodies all the characteristics I think Dickens wants us to believe a gentleman is. He's kind, he's thoughtful, all that kind of thing. But you never really get the sense that he really is one uh. from Dickens. And I think there's this weird sort of tension you get in that novel between Dickens desperately as that lower middle class person originally wanting to say, I'm better than or, or you know, as good as and the same as the landed gentry and the aristocrats, if not better, but, but also I'm not working class. Um, and, and a really interesting thing to look at is his autobiographical fragment. He never finished writing it, but he wrote his childhood, uh, about his childhood. And when he had to go work in the blacking factory because his dad got put into debtors prison, he was drawn from middle, lower middle class background. But of course, he was, ended up working with people, um, including a boy called Bob Fagan, who, um, in the, who was very, very nice to him, actually. And then he does an appalling representation of, of, of Fagin in, um, I was gonna say. in Oliver in Oliver Twist. It was so anti-Semitic that that he himself, Dickens himself, later edited it to make it less anti-Semitic because he recognised himself that it was so bad. Oh man! But yes, but he but he when he talks about his time in the blacking factory, he talks about how his soul has sunk down, and he just he, and, the, and and just how appalled he is at having to come into contact with these other boys that are not really from the same class as him. So you can, and so it's really, there's something really troubling about that. And I, and I think you see that in his representation of Pip, mm. because Pip is a working class boy. And if you compare that with his other first person narrative, which is David Copperfield, who is a middle class boy, David makes mistakes in the same way that Pip does. But David Copperfield is afforded his happy ending in a way that Pip kind of isn't. Mm. So I think there's something really interesting it, when we look at middle class writers uh, about how they view class and and it's sort of like they almost want to feel like the boundaries don't exist for them, but they do for other people. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Interesting. I'm talking in broad strokes. There's always going to be exceptions, obviously, to everything I everything I say. So to link it to Dracula, though, I was thinking I was thinking about this. You because you've got. Count Dracula, obviously aristocracy, obviously a villain. I think that they talk about like 300 years of wealth that he has. He's very sniffy as well, isn't he, about bit, about his bones eventually lying with the commoners. So there's something <laughs> like that, even though he won't die. But there is something like that. It's like he, he, Yeah, he, he does talk a lot of, and with a lot of scorn about the peasantry that nevertheless he needs to like yes. move his unconscious body across Europe. He's a bad egg. Uh, and there's definitely class stuff there at play in that. Where and Arthur is the other mm-hmm. sort of gentry figure. But for me, he, he seems to become sort of assimilated into kind of the middle class work ethic. And particularly like it's interesting that Van Helsing makes him state Lucy. And I think there's a class thing going on there as well. It's sort of almost bringing him into the sort of those middle class values and and ideals and he's sort of enacting it out on Lucy's body. There's there's even a moment where, you know, after his father dies, uh, Van Helsing addresses him as Lord Godalmy and he's like, no, please, not yet. Yeah. My, fa- my father just died. I don't want to be called Lord yet. Yes, exactly. So he, so I think there's almost sort of an assimilation into like the middle class and middle class ideas and ideals. And so he kind of, he's, he's fine. But Dracula, he's the sort of it typical aristocrat is 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 very bad and 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 depicted as a contagion almost this sort of disease Mm -hmm. um and and i was thinking it's quite interesting that 
Jonathan Harker, who is, of course, the, the epitome of like the middle class hero, isn't he? He's like, you know, he's the lawyer and he goes across. He becomes quite deferential when he's first in the castle to Dracula. And he ends up when he comes out of it, very much weak, like a weak character. Mina has to look after him. Mm-hmm. He's, and I think there's something metaphorical probably going on there as well about um, that sort of old system of with, with the aristocrats with all the power. Almost like Dracula's taking his dignity even as he's like feeding on him or yeah. letting the the vampiresses feed on him whatever the text actually yeah implies it, it implies a lot of things <laughs> it does it does it does and a lot that i think Bram Stoker probably didn't realize i i actually kind of want to move into as we're talking about um dracula and as we're talking about i don't know the way especially the women in dracula are treated i'd love to move into gender yes like Victorian ideals about gender. But but also, before we do that, uh, we should define some terms. So when we're talking about gender, and especially like gender roles, what are we talking about? So um, I, when I'm talking about it in a Victorian context, I'm going to be talking about it in terms of like the dominant ideas of the time, which isn't to say everybody thought in this way. But generally, the dominant discourse t- tends to teach gender as binary. Mm-hmm. And also essential. So it's like an essentialist approach to it. So there's something that, you know, is about women that makes them women and men that makes them men. And there's that kind of no crossover, right. you know, which isn't what I believe. But uh, at the time, the dominant discourse would have treated, yeah, as m- male and female as very separate and having quite distinct characteristics. Um, and so that's how I'm going to be talking about it here, um, because we're talking about the context. Cool. Uh, so let's let's talk about gender. Um, I, I think about you know, in the same way that I think about class in Victorian er- times as being pretty set and rigid, um, gender roles even more so. And and to that end, like, I think of it like Victorian ideals carrying over as being kind of some of our cultural problems roots. Um, I, were, were gender roles in Victorian times really like that? Were they very, like, separate and regimented like that? Broadly speaking, yes. It's hard to talk about, like, you know, the entirety of society in that way. So, for example... For the upper classes and the middle classes to, and particularly like the upper middle classes, if you were a woman and you worked, there was a huge stigma attached to that. Like it was not kind of socially acceptable. Mm. But obviously working class women worked and were expected to work. So it again, it, like it might be a bit class dependent or social group dependent, but broadly speaking, Yes, I think gender roles were quite sort of defined. Tet tends to be quite rigid like that. And again, it's partly like a lot of the dominant discourse at the time about gender is produced by the middle classes. And they tend to treat gender in this way. Obviously, like ideas existed before, like, you know, like Jane Austen and even before that, you know, Jane Austen is dealing with like the gentry and its fringes, but you get a lot of like, you can see a lot of like gender roles at play mm-hmm. in then and that carries over into the 19th century but in the victorian period what you get is this sort of i don't know what i call it a theory but like this idea let's say called the separation of the spheres mm-hmm. so you've got like the domestic sphere which is the woman's realm and the world of work which is for the man and the woman stays at home and she's in the domestic sphere and she looks after the house and it becomes a little haven for the man who has to go out into the sinful world (laughs) to kind of come back into and relax and rest 
um, because the woman mustn't be tainted by the outside world. But of course, men, and we, as we know, are, you know, they're more hardy creatures than us <laughs> uh, poor women. And, you know, they can cope with the sins of the outside world, but women mustn't be tainted. And uh, so you, you get this idea, this sort of idea and separation of um, the domestic sphere is the realm of the woman. Women are wives and they're mothers. And men are, you know, there for the world of work and they look after the family. So that was a genuinely real thing. And obviously people are challenging it and men too as well. But generally speaking, this is the sort of the dominant kind of cultural discourse about gender at the time. Um, and there's a poem I always think of, which is Coventry Patmore's Angel in the House, Ooh. which I think was written about 1860. It was incredibly popular. And it's basically a, a, a guy writes about his incredibly loyal, chaste, perfect wife. Um, who looks like an angel and this is a horrible section where he's sort of I think he chastises her or he's just being really super grumpy because he's had a bad day at work and then she sort of like looks adoringly at him as though like she's to blame and like she doesn't reproach him for being like for him being so awful to her that that, that then that makes him feel bad about how he's treated her it's just horrific oh, I mean it is. it's so bad but it becomes a very popular trope in the 19th century novel dickens loves her we definitely see that in dracula too yes exactly with with mina and um lucy and you also with queen victoria as well she's an interesting one yeah i was gonna say the the leader of the empire at this time is a woman so how how does that how does that track for people she was somebody that trod the line quite well of being a monarch but also being sort of presenting this image of like that traditional gender role as a mother and a wife and there's a really famous painting I think it's called just like the royal family and it was painted in 1846 and you probably know what I mean it's it's Albert and Victoria she's slightly in the background sat on chairs with their children surrounding them but they're weirdly dressed in sort of like formal attire that mark them as like mark her as the queen and him as the prince consort but their children are sort of playing around them. Um, and it sort of both depicts, look, this is the royal family, but it is a family. Uh. Um, and there's something is presented as like, that, that's important in that. And it, and it highlights, yeah, Queen, Queen Victoria, she is a mother as well. She is, she is looking after her family. And although it was a, meant to be a kind of a private portrait, and I think eventually it hung in at Osborne House, originally when it was exhibited, I think somewhere like at James, St. James's Palace, like 100,000 people went to see it. And then it was mass produced as an engraving in 1850 oh. for popular circulation as well. So she is also kind of projecting this idea of like the family. And it, it's almost like she's the sort of exception but 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 women really should be at home. Uh. But she had very interesting views as well because at the same time, she, like she loved Albert like passionately, um, and I think and 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 many ways have very incredibly conservative ideas about um, you know what women should do and what they should be. You know that obviously she herself is a victim of you know patriarchal structures that have been imposed on her. But interestingly, in her diaries, which are like super candid, she kind of hated giving birth she had lots of kids she hated breastfeeding she said it made her feel like a cow um <laughs> so she had very mixed views about it, right. <laughs> about it in some ways as well but i think sort of publicly sort of portrays this like yeah this again this sort of traditional image and then yeah you were mentioning 
Lucy and Nina. Yeah. But what are your thoughts? What are your kind of thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that like over and over again, you know, Lucy and Nina are re- re- like described as as sweet, as kind-hearted. Um, Lucy and Mina obviously are, are different people and actually like surprisingly different people for Victorian novel writing about women. Um, but both of them are described as like being like compassionate and giving and understanding and like both of them express like a, a will to take care of their fiancés um, in, in a way that is reflective of that separation of the spheres. You know, Mina learns shorthand and learns to use a typewriter specifically so that she can be a legal assistant to Jonathan. And, you know, Lucy, she's not, I don't think that she's portrayed by the novel as being as clever, even though I would argue that's, I, I don't know. I have opinions about Lucy. Don't worry about it. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Yeah. This is in contrast, though, to the vampires or the women who become vampires who are, you know, they, they're described as having cruel mouths and laughing wantonly and having their sexuality uh, emphasized. Not that uh, Bram Stoker ever, ever says anything but the word voluptuous when he's describing someone. Um, yeah, sexually, but like... <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, so much voluptuousness in this novel. Oh my gosh, over and over again. It's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, the, the number of times I have heard, you know, Johnny Sims or Ben Galvin say the word voluptuous is maybe too many times for anyone to say if you could word. do me a super cut <laughs> of that, please. We'll talk. <laughs> Just mainly so I can text it to Ben. Uh, oh, yeah. All right. I'll get Stephen on that right away. <laughs> uh, all that, all this to say, you know, does does this, like, contrast between, you know, uh, the, the way that women are described pre-vampire and then the way that the vampire women are described, is that tapping into something in Victorian gender roles or anxiety about gender? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's tapping into a a, a male anxiety about powerful women. Mm. I think it's tapping into a male anxiety about female sexuality, which, I mean, they were so obsessed with. And, like, the medical discourse, I've got a book on it, actually, somewhere, where just, uh, um, just medical men just being utterly terrified about the idea that, you know, women, like, have sexuality or you know might like to orgasm or whatever I mean it's just you know it's it's you know they're sort of of horrified by this idea yeah so I think there's a there is an anxiety about it and and it's linked I mean the sexuality thing it's got to be linked to like you know the idea of like female empowerment and independence and that kind of thing so I think you're right I think it's 100% tapping into this sort of male anxiety about gender about women about independent women uh, women's sexuality. Lucy, you're right. I mean, she sort of embodies this angel in the house, particularly with her beautiful blonde hair. And there's that image of like her when she dies initially, I think, and when she and then when she's killed again as the vampire and sort of goes back. She's got the beautiful golden curls, and Van Helsing creepily brushes it at one point. Certainly, <laughs> so she's that innocent figure. And she's infantilized a lot. And I think often the angel in the house figure in novels does get infantilized. Mm-hmm. Um, Van Helsing does it a lot to her. What's really interesting about her, though, is there are moments early on before she even begins her transformation where she says things that are a little bit like, that's that's not very, that's not very uh, sort of stereotypical. She says something half jokingly, but it's about like, why can't I have three husbands? Yep, that's the one. And that suggests an excessive desire I think and it's I I sometimes read Lucy or think about Lucy as 
it, it, her transformation to into a vampire is almost like it's Bram Stoker playing out what like the the end like he he is a <laughs> as a male writer imagines the end of that is like a woman having a desire like that or and, and being willing to kind of voice it like is the natural conclusion that she ends up like basically as this sort of aberrant creature that is an inverse of a mother mm. so she feeds on the children as the boofer lady rather than the children feeding on her yeah like it's like that so it's sort of saying like you know if we're to let that idea these ideas get out of hand this is the the sort of the extreme that it could go to and it must must be stamped out and roles must be reinforced rigidly in order to kind of present prevent that because look what could happen and obviously it's all played out in metaphor but you know is that what he's getting at is that is that his anxiety i think you can see that. I mean, the violence of the scene where she is staked. Blood spurting everywhere. Yeah, there's an amazing article. I think it's by Carol Senf. Got it here. Um, if anybody wants to look it up. It's called Dracula and Women, Carol Senf. And you can get it in the Cambridge Companion to Dracula. She looks at Dracula. She calls it um, almost like a, a punitive patriarchy containing the wayward desire of middle class women. Um, and she's just some really good work on on the bit with Lucy and sees, I mean, she sees it as like a, Lucy's almost, is presented as a medical case, mm. which, you know, doctors would do at the time, you know, like, oh, look, this this woman has excessive desires or, or is, is outside the norm. There must be a problem with her. So we're othering her and it's a problem to be fixed. Uh, and that fixing in the novel is through the staking. But in, in this kind of, hugely violent sexually violent way i mean the phallic stake being driven by arthur into the body of lucy she writhes around i think Semp says it it's almost it reads like an orgasm but then she becomes back to how she was originally that kind of pure and chaste um lucy having the darkness kind of expunged from within her so yeah so i think lucy in particular is a, a real it show it deals with those anxieties but Mina too, and you, it was interesting, you pointed out, you know, actually, you know, she learns shorthand and that kind of thing, but you're quite rightly pointed out, it's become kind of a legal assistant yeah. to Jonathan. <laughs> and I think it's Mina, it's either Mina or Lucy, jokingly invokes the idea of the new woman yes. in the 19th century. I think they both do, actually. Yeah, like, oh, we would even make them blush with, that, <laughs> with our appetites. Um, and sort of half joking about them. But I mean, Dracula's in 1897, mm-hmm. I think, yes. correct me if I'm wrong. In 1894, an essay comes out by a woman called Sarah Grant called The New Aspect of the New Woman Question. And I'm not 100% on this, but I think that's her coining the term the new woman, which is basically like, you know, women who, uh, you know, want to be independent, particularly financially independent, forge their own path. They want to work. They want to be their own people. They don't want to be constrained and contained by the patriarchy. And in some ways, Mina's coded like that in the fact that she learns shorthand, uh, she's very, very competent. She, you know, she works in inverted commas, but there's always this sense of wanting to contain her. When we first read about her, Jonathan's constantly going, uh, note to self and get the recipe for Mina. <laughs> um, you just like paprika, Jonathan, just slap it on everything. Um, or he might be allergic given how much water he had to drink when he tasted it, so. <laughs> Also true, also true. But you're really, like, I think astute to pick up the fact that her work is always in the service of men. Mm -hmm. And is this why it's acceptable to Bram Stoker? 
uh, because right at the end, we get that really traditional and conservative familial tableau at the end. And she's kind of giving it, she's, she's got the family now at the end. Yes. Yeah, with the new woman, it, it, it was such a challenge and there's such a critical backlash against it. It's really hard to define what it is because whatever reading you do, it depends on the writer at the time. Right. You know, she's like depicted as being like too mannish or 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 not mannish enough or or like, you know, too sexual or not sexual enough or, you know, wanting to kill men or, you know, or, or liking men too much. Like it's there's there's no kind of like cohesive sort of depiction of her, but but there's lots of writing about the new woman and clearly there's a huge anxiety about her. And some of my favourite things to look at are the punch cartoons of her. And like there's like three of three favourite ones are um I think once you can look them up on the internet if you just type in basically like punch cartoons to the new woman, these will come up. One is I think called What It Will Soon Come To. And it's a woman who's very tall towering over this tiny little man and if you look at the if you look at the way they're they're depicted it's that and of, of course this isn't my view but um it's the, the the woman has been given what at the time would be considered traditional masculine characteristics broad shoulders tall muscular angular face whereas the man has been given what might be considered at the time to be typical um sort of feminine traits um of course like you know i mean just awful like sort of system and yeah I won't I won't I won't get on my soapbox about uh, about how gender is constructed I hate it but um uh but 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 it is I hate it um but uh but you get like a, a, a playing on that so the tiny little man he's called Mr Smithereen as well as though he's sort of been pummeled down and she says um, would you like me to carry your bag like the woman is saying to man and, and the title of it is what it will soon come to mm. um and another one I like is again they've done this. Uh, it's it's two sisters. They're wearing neckties, even though they're wearing skirts. They're wearing neckties, and again they're very angular, very uh, sort of muscular um, in their depiction. They take up a lot of the frame, and in the background, sort of um, with his hand on his hip and sort of uh, looking at feet by Victorian standards, um, is their brother. And they and they say, "Oh, well, tea's going to come soon. Won't you join us?" And he says something like. Um, Oh, oh no! I, I I'm going to have my tea downstairs with the servants. I can't do without female company nowadays. <laughs> and it's called that. That's called the new woman. I think just called the new woman. And the third one um, is something like the 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 literary woman of the new school. Oh no, passionate female literary types of the new school, meaning new women. Um, and um, it's, it's a there's a typical kind of what we might expect from the depiction of a Victorian lady looking up to a uh, teacher type set, uh, called Mrs Quilpson saying um, you know oh I, I wonder you never married um, and uh, the woman replies uh, what I marry and be a man's plaything no thank you <laughs> but the joke is that the depiction of her you know she's again drawn very masculinely she's got a beard that kind of thing so you know like just I mean horrible uh, misogyny obviously going on in that but again it, it's playing it's playing into those anxieties about the new woman and this new sort of independence and power that women demanded and wanted and were gaining mm. and the fear of that and I think Mina in many ways we can read her as a new woman even though she sort of mocking mocks them a little bit herself yeah but at the end I think Bram Stoker saying yes well that's all very well and good and I don't necessarily have a problem with women working but as long as it's in the service of men and that reminds me of 
John Ruskin, the, the, the kind of cultural and literary critic, did a series of lectures called Sesame and Lilies. And in one of the lectures called Of Queen's Gardens, he talks about education of women. Um, and he says, yes, yes, no, well, we must educate women. That's important. Of course, we must educate them. All knowledge should be given to them um, in order that, for them to be able to understand and even aid the work of men. Oh, good. <laughs> so it's Thanks, kind of, and I get that. Yeah, I sort of, I get that vibe a little bit from Dracula and, and his representation of, uh, and Bram Stoker's representation of Mina mm -hmm. for me. Um, of course, there's multiple ways to read novels and, um, you know, you could, we could say she represents a challenge to sort of patriarchal order. And even though it's resolved at the end and she is, is kind of brought back within that patriarchal control, there has been this moment where she, she, we, we've shown Bram Stoker shown positively what women can achieve. Mm -hmm. And that, that might be sort of a Bactinian sort of carnivalesque reading. Like it, it, that, that moment, that moment of independence exists and, it, and, it, and then um, it'll start people thinking about it. And maybe that's a good thing. So there's lots of different ways we can read it, I think. It, it is really interesting to me in, in like in participating with the, the, the Dracula Daily Zeitgeist on Tumblr and, and having hundreds of people reading Dracula together at the same time, having an internet book club and making memes about it how much of that like uh being like doing work in the service of men is i would almost say redeemed by the fact that jonathan just loves her so much and like and would you know let his soul be dragged to hell if she became a vampire because he doesn't want to do without her and like i, I think that it's it's interesting that i've almost missed exactly how misogynist the setup is mm. because i i like them as a couple oh yeah i mean they're a lovely couple uh, but yeah, but, but yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, he, he, like that's the first we hear of her is just like, oh, must get a rest, must get the recipe for Mina. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, and um, you know, who knows what Bram Stoker was intending, and 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 if that even matters, if that even matters. <laughs> I was just thinking, I mean, my my student, I was talking to, with a student about Dracula, and I don't know whether she'd read this or it was her idea, and it possibly could have been her idea actually, but I forget because I've had a child. Um, and it was like two weeks away. <laughs> uh, but she was she was talking very, uh, regardless of whose idea it was, very eruditely and brilliantly about the text. And she was saying it was interesting that Lucy is staked with a sort of a, you know, with a stake, which is a very phallic object. But Dracula is, is he knifed at the end? He both. He gets his throat cut and he's stabbed. Yeah, so there's sort of this throat cutting as well, which and it sort of almost minimises that the sort of the phallicness of the of the staking in a way hmm. uh, my student was saying and we were we were sort of chatting that through and wondering you know whether or not that's you know in terms of gender like like the the female vampire is punished more in a way than the male vampire interesting yeah there's a lot going on. It's very, it's a very interesting novel. It can be subjected to kind of all kinds of readings, and that's what I love about literary criticism. You can do like all these different readings, and like all different things and competing ideas will emerge, and it's endlessly fascinating. I'm interested then, you know, as we're talking about the the like the genderness of the vampire, then do you think that masculine uh, gender roles are like embodied or reversed in a way for for Dracula himself? He's the only male vampire that we see. 
or is that like a non-issue with him? Is him is he more about you know class and maybe anti-Semitism or or xenophobia? I think he's thought probably all these things. There must be a gender thing going on with him as well. I'm trying to think how he's described. Yeah, he's he's given a, an aquiline nose. He has a very uh like oh gosh. Uh, he he's got uh hair on his yeah, palms. Yeah, I was going to say which is kind of like gross. wolfish, isn't it? Um and yeah, I do remember the high yeah. aquiline nose. Um I think that that seems to be quite class coded maybe. Yeah, dark cruel eyes, his little teeth. I don't know. I mean he you can subject him to a very lovely queer reading and I know you're going to speak to somebody about that um which would be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um is is there a just he I mean, he's ultimately the big bad, isn't it? Yes. Um, and needs to be destroyed. And he's a threat. But in particular, he's like, well, he's a threat to everybody. But there seems to be a way in which he's conceived of he's being a, like a real threat to like the women because it's Lucy and Nina who become his targets. I, I get if I had to guess, I'd, probably, I'd say probably, <laughs> but I probably need to read it again and have to think about it in those terms. But yeah, almost. Uh, yeah, very probably. But. Um, alas, I, <laughs> alas, I can't think now off the top of my head. You were talking about how much you love literary criticism. So when you think about Victorian literature and, you know, as you're teaching it, as you are reading it, um, as you're, you're writing about it, what, what, are your, what are your favorite pieces of Victorian literature? Oh, yes. Um, so I love lots of things. My favorite... Uh, I've probably got three favourites. Um, one is uh, Anthony Trollope, who um, gets you know, is sort of not really celebrated as much as people like uh, like Dickens, but I think what writes wonderful kind of slice of life um, in kind of the country uh, in Victorian England, and it's yeah, it's very looking back on a kind of older sort of landed gentry type systems. A lot of his novels, not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, the Last Chronicle of Barsetshire. Uh, is my favourite novel and that's part of a series called The Chronicles of Barca which tell the various stories about different people um, living in a, in a county um, partly because I think he's very funny as a writer but also he does character study and he does character really really well and I think what he's really good at is depicting characters that are sort of varying shades of grey you very rarely with him get somebody who's an out and out villain I think there's like maybe two I can think of in his 40-set-odd novels. <laughs> um, and uh, you very rarely get people who are purely, purely good. Right. And what he tends to do is show how kind of people who are fairly decent people can kind of get themselves into a bit of a pickle. Um, and and that's quite sad. And, and and he does it often, does it very funnily and sometimes with a great amount of heart. But one of the, the te- I think a testament to how good he is as a writer is there is a character that appears in the last in the in the, chron- the chronicles of Barsetshire called Mrs. Proudie, and she's married to the bishop, and she's really a thoroughly detestable character in many many ways. And you sort of triumph, like you love other characters triumphing over her. In the last one, the last chronicle of Barset, there is a moment where one of the main characters. Um, who himself isn't like you know the most likable character in the world but he is clearly hard done by by her and he triumphs over her and you can like the way it's written is like you can really feel his and like like just joy at kind of beating her and you feel it too you just feel absolutely joyous one moment and then spoiler alert, spoiler alert she dies oh no 
and I know, sorry, everyone. <laughs> um, but she dies in that later on in that novel, and you genuinely feel really sad that she has, even though you don't really like her as a character. Wow. And I just kind of think that's an amazing feat to to make you feel sorry or sad that somebody's died that you can't that you didn't like. Um, so Anthony Trollope is I'm a big fan of. And then my other two go-tos are Wilkie Collins. He just writes amazing um, mystery fiction. Some people say he wrote the first detective fiction mm. with um, detective English, nov- first novel, detective novel in, in English, or first English detective novel. I don't know whether that's true. That's probably almost certainly not true. <laughs> and it was someone like Elliot who said that. But it, that's the Moonstone. But the Woman in White and the Moonstone are utterly incredible books. And Armadale, um, he just writes really fantastic, fantastic mysteries that are just like gripping. Um, and you know, you were saying about Mina and Lucy and like them being quite different women mm-hmm. and that being unusual. There's a really good kind of pairing of um, Laura and Marion in the Woman in White, and Marion in particular mm. is just everything Mina could be and more she is just utterly like the best um character like one of the best uh female characters I think and I absolutely I absolutely love her so uh Wilkie Collins and then finally um Lady uh, Audley's Secret is one of my favorite books that's by Mary Elizabeth Braddon um and she uh, her like Wilkie Collins is sensationalist so again it's like mystery and crime and um that's really great if you're interested in kind of gender in the 19th century and its depiction. And again, it's sort of like a little mystery novel, which is super exciting. <laughs> um, there's loads of really good Victorian fiction. There's loads of not good Victorian fiction. I was going to say, what, what's something that you like, you think is way overrated? I like Dickens to an extent, but I don't love him as much as other people love him. I think he is very good. I think he's a good writer. But I think, I, I feel like, and it's maybe just because Great Expectations has just been adapted again and it's just insane how much this novel has been adapted when 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 Wilkie Collins' Armadale is right there. Lady Audley's Secret is right there. The Chronicles of Barset are right there. And they were last adapted when Alan Rickman was like 20 and, <laughs> and played one of the very few villainous characters. Oh my goodness. I think maybe occasionally he can get overrated. I really don't like Little Dorrit, for example, mm. although I know a lot of people do. Um, but then, you know, he wrote Nicholas Nickleby and that's very funny. So he always gets a pass ultimately from me. <laughs> Although, you know, not for being a person because it sounds like he was like really not a very nice person. Um, but I'm sure he was nice in many ways, but he wasn't very nice to his wife. He was really awful to his wife. But before we go, I want to talk a little bit about Victoriosity because I just love this show. Um, oh, thank yeah, you. Please, you know, please, everyone listen to Victoriosity. It is a, a rollicking, steampunky, Victorian-ish adventure, mystery, comedy. I don't know. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all the things. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, bit detect- detective comedy set in a reimagined Victorian past. Yes. I think it's how I tend to describe it. So, yes, probably steampunk adjacent. Tesla punk. Ooh, Tesla punk, which is... So much more fun. Um, I was going to say that, like, you know, in Gothic horror, you know, they, they talk about grabbing the things that cause the most anxiety in, in a culture in a time period and, and exploring those with a monster um, or with the idea of dread. But you work in the same way with comedy. So, like, what do you like to grab from the Victorian sensibilities to use for comedy? You know, what do you find easiest to have fun with and play with in that? And what do you find hardest? 
So I think comedy is tricky, isn't it? Um, because obviously you're always wanting to make people laugh. Um, and we never want to do anything, obviously, that like just it's not funny to make to to make light of. Um, you don't want to do that. And you never want to punch down. But there's so much weird and absurd and stupid, ridiculous things the Victorian period that make it very easy to kind of lampoon, you know, particularly like with gender roles and things like that. There was something we were writing, I can't remember whether, whether it was the novel or the series, uh, and I was reading it back and I was thinking, God, wow, we really hate politicians. But I think that's probably a sort of a symptom of like the current state of affairs in Britain mm. <laughs> currently. But I think comedy, like to speak generally, I think comedy is actually a very, very powerful, subversive tool because you, and it, and it depends what you're doing and it depends on the tone that you're going for. But I think it ha really genuinely has the power to challenge in a way that surprises or people aren't expecting or don't even notice. Mm. So you can make a joke that will make people laugh, but afterwards they might, might make them think more seriously about something, even if it's only a tiny moment. For us, it might be something like we have a museum called the Museum, the London Museum of Other Nations Antiquities, <laughs> which is sort of thrown away. But it, and it's meant to be funny and people can kind of laugh at that. But there's a serious point behind that, which is like, we have other people's stuff and let's just give it back. That's not okay. But like just making that joke, most people laugh at it, but then afterwards might come away and be like, huh, yeah, I guess our museums do just have other people's stuff. <laughs> you know, and there's, so there's a, I think there's a, you've got to do it sensitively and carefully and you know, particularly with comedy, you know, you're going for a particular tone, you want it to be lighthearted. But I think there is the, you can through comedy be quite subversive or like have those moments where you can make people laugh, but then later, hopefully they then might think, oh wait, yeah, maybe there was a point there. It wasn't just funny. I think, I think, I think comedy has a lot of power to do that. And, and absolutely we almost certainly don't do it in the best way but there's lots of comics and comedians that that really use comedy in a brilliant way to kind of challenge and and, and make people think differently and it's a and so therefore I think it comedy can be a real force for good in that way mm -hmm. well uh Dr Jen Sugden thank you so much for joining us today telling us all about your field of study and and how it applies to Dracula and uh, everyone listen to Victoriosity season three is coming soon, correct? Uh, yes, hopefully in the back half of this year. Uh, Chris and I had a baby, uh, so that <laughs> um, slowed things down somewhat. Because uh, it turns it's a out, busy. Yeah, take a lot of time. Um, <laughs> but it is coming, we absolutely promise. And you also have a book coming out pretty soon, right? Yeah, so that's going to be um, in spring 2024. Um, uh, that is, yeah, the first Victoriosity novel. So excited. And it's a and it, oh, thank you it's a brand new story set in the same world with our two leads uh fleet and clara um and it's set just after season two when they've set up their own detective agency yeah. so i'm very excited um for that yeah so uh, thank you so much for having me this was so great i absolutely love talking about victorian fiction and victorian kind of culture boy and, are you um, in the right place <laughs> yeah so this has been absolutely delightful and i am utterly like so excited about um regarding dracula i think it's brilliant uh to actually have one that's going to be an audio drama 
um, and I will be making sure all my students um, and and all my Twitter followers are listening. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, well, I know, and I know it's an absolutely phenomenal team right across the board from the actors to the production team that you've got working on it. So, um, yes, yeah, it's going to be, if you're listening to this and you, I, I'm not sure why you would be, but if you're listening <laughs> to this and you haven't listened to it yet, then you absolutely, it's going to, it's going to be amazing. So, um, so get on it. And, um, and also I'll give a little shout out to, if I may. Oh, please. Um, I've just recently been listening to Forks and Stallion. Yes. Oh, I am absolutely having the time of my life. It is utterly brilliant. So, um, <laughs> yeah, if you like Victorian, you like detective, then that's going to be right up your alley. So give that a listen as well. Thanks again to all our supporters who made this series possible. And thank you to Dr. Jen Sugden for joining us. You can find links to all the media we mentioned in the show notes. Go listen to Victoriosity. You can follow them on Facebook and Twitter at Victoriosity. That's V-I-C-T-O-R-I-O-C-I-T-Y. Or go to their website, victoriosity.com. We'll meet again soon, listeners. Until then, come freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring 